Hey, party people! Welcome back to Historical, the pod that aims to bring you public info curated by the collective intelligence of humankind, aka Wikipedia. In other words, we curate the curation to deliver a refined list of all things California. And right now, we're in the early days of this broadcast. We started with the Awani Hotel, then broadened scope with Yosemite National Park, took a scenic detour with the Buffalo Soldiers, and are back to one of the heavy hitters, John Muir. John Muir, as we'll learn together, is a Scotsman who spent his formidable years in the Midwest before venturing out to his beloved California and changing the world right from our backyard. He's widely known as the father of our national park system, in large part due to his time spent in Yosemite. And while I find his works to be rather flowery, there's no denying the importance of his role as a forefather to ecology, conservation, California history, and the outdoor adventure hysteria that attracts millions of visitors to the state each year. Without further ado, John Muir. John Muir, also known as John of the Mountains and Father of the National Parks, was an influential Scottish-American, naturalist, author, environmental philosopher, glaciologist, and early advocate for the preservation of wilderness in the United States of America. His letters, essays, and books describing his adventures in nature, especially in the Sierra Nevada, have been read by millions. His activism helped to preserve the Yosemite Valley and Sequoia National Park, and his example has served as an inspiration for the preservation of many other wilderness areas. The Sierra Club, which he co-founded, is a prominent American conservation organization. In his later life, Muir devoted most of his time to the preservation of the western forests. As part of the campaign to make Yosemite a national park, Muir published two landmark articles on wilderness preservation in the Century Magazine, The Treasures of Yosemite and Features of the Proposed Yosemite National Park. This helped support the push for U.S. Congress to pass a bill in 1890 establishing Yosemite National Park. The spiritual quality and enthusiasm toward nature expressed in his writing has inspired readers, including presidents and congressmen, to take action to help preserve large natural areas. John Muir has been considered an inspiration to both Americans and Scots. Muir's biographer Stephen J. Holmes believes that, quote, or that Muir has become, quote, one of the patron saints of 20th century American environmental activity, both political and recreational. As a result, his writings are commonly discussed in books and journals, and he has often been quoted by nature photographers such as Ansel Adams. Quote, Muir has profoundly shaped the very categories through which Americans understand and envision their relationships with the natural world, writes Holmes. Muir was noted for being an ecological thinker, political spokesman, and religious prophet whose writings became a personal guide into nature for countless individuals, making his name almost ubiquitous in the modern environmental consciousness. According to author William Anderson, Muir exemplified, quote, the archetype of our oneness with the earth, while biographer Donald Worcester says he believed his mission was saving the American soul from total surrender to materialism. On April 21, 2013, 
the first ever John Muir Day was celebrated in Scotland, which, marks, which marked the 175th anniversary of his birth, paying homage to the conservationist. Early life. Boyhood in Scotland. John Muir's birthplace is a four-story stone house in Dunbar, East Lothian, Scotland. His parents were Daniel Muir and Anne Gillery. He was the third of eight children, Margaret, Sarah, David, Daniel, Anne, and Mary, twins, and the American-born Joanna. His earliest recollections were of taking short walks with his grandfather when he was three. In his autobiography, he described his boyhood pursuits, which included fighting, either by reenacting romantic battles from the wars of Scottish independence, or just scrapping on the playground and hunting for bird's nest, ostensibly to one-up his fellows as they compared notes on who knew where the most were located. Author Amy Marquise noted, notes that he began his love affair with nature while young and implies that it may have been in reaction to his strict religious upbringing. His father believed that anything that distracted from Bible studies was frivolous and punishable. But the young Muir was a restless spirit and especially prone to lashings. As a young boy, Muir became fascinated with the East Lothian landscape and spent a lot of time wandering, wandering the local coastline and countryside. It was during this time that he became interested in natural history and the works of Scottish naturalist Alexander Wilson. Although he spent the majority of his life in America, Muir never forgot his roots in Scotland. He held a strong connection with his birthplace and Scottish identity throughout his life and was frequently heard talking about his childhood spent amid the East Lothian countryside. He greatly admired the works of Thomas Carlyle and poetry of Robert Burns. He was known to carry a collection of poems by Burns during his travels through the American wilderness. He returned to Scotland on a trip in 1893 where he met one of his Dunbar schoolmates and visited the places of his youth that were etched in his memory. He also never lost his strong Scottish accent despite having lived in America for many years. Immigration to America In 1849, Muir's family emigrated to the United States, starting a farm near Portage, Wisconsin, called Fountain Lake Farm. It has been designated a National Historic Landmark. Stephen Fox recounts that Muir's father found the Church of Scotland insufficiently strict in faith and practice, leading to their immigration and joining a congregation of the Campbellite Restoration Movement called the Disciples of Christ. By the age of 11, the young Muir had learned to recite, quote, by heart and by sore flesh, end quote, all of the New Testament and most of the Old Testament. In maturity, while remaining a deeply spiritual man, Muir may have changed his orthodox beliefs. He wrote, quote, I never tried to abandon creeds or code of civilization. They went away of their own accord without leaving any consciousness of loss, end quote. Elsewhere in his writings, he described the, uh, the conventional, excuse me, they, he described the conventional image of a creator, quote, as purely a manufactured article as any puppet of a halfpenny theater. When he was 22 years old, Muir enrolled at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, pay, paying his own way for several years. There, under a towering black locust tree beside North Hall, Muir took his first botany lesson. A fellow student plucked a flower from the tree and used it to explain how the Grand Locust is a member of the pea family related to the straggling pea plant. Fifty years later, 
the naturalist Muir described the day in his autobiography. This fine lesson charmed me and sent me flying to the woods and meadows in wild enthusiasm. As a freshman, Muir studied chemistry with Professor Ezra Carr and his wife Jean. They became lifelong friends and Muir developed a lasting interest in chemistry and the sciences. Muir took an eclectic approach to his studies, attending classes for two years but never being listed higher than a first-year student due to his unusual selection of courses. Records showed his class status as irregular gent, and even though he never graduated, he, er he learned enough geology and botany to inform his later wanderings. In 1863, his brother Daniel left Wisconsin and moved to southern Ontario, then known as Canada West in the United Canadas, to avoid the draft during the U.S. Civil War. Muir left school and traveled to the same region in 1864 and spent the spring, summer, and fall exploring the woods and swamps and collecting plants around the southern reaches of Lake Huron's Georgian Bay. Muir hiked along the Niagara Escarpment, including much of today's Bruce Trail, with his money running low and winter coming, he reunited with his brother Daniel near Meaford, Ontario, who persuaded him to work with him at the sawmill and rake factory of William Trout and Charles J. Muir lived with the Trout family in an area called Trout Hollow, south of Meaford, on the Big Head River. While there, he continued botanizing, exploring the escarpment and bogs, collecting and cataloging plants. One source appears to indicate he worked at the mill-slash-factory until the summer of 1865, while another says he stayed on at Trout Hollow until after a fire burned it down in February 1866. In March 1866, Muir returned to the United States, settling in Indianapolis to work in a wagon wheel factory. He proved valuable to his employers because of his inventiveness in improving the machines and processes, he was promoted to supervisor, being paid $25 per week. In early March 1867, an accident changed the course of his life. A tool he was using slipped and struck him in the eye. The file slipped and cut the cornea in his right eye, and then his left eye sympathetically failed. He was confirmed to a darkened room for six weeks to regain his sight, worried about whether he would end up blind. When he did, quote, he saw the world and his purpose in a new light, Muir later wrote. Quote, this affliction has driven me to the sweet fields. God has, has to nearly kill us sometimes to teach us lessons, end quote. From that point on, he determined to be true to himself and follow the dream of exploration and study of plants. In September 1867, Muir undertook a walk of about a thousand miles from Kentucky to Florida, which he recounted in his book, A Thousand Mile Walk to the Gulf. He had no specific route chosen except to go by the wildest, leafiest, and least trodden way I could find. When Muir arrived at Cedar Key, he began working for Richard Hodgson at Hodgson's Sawmill. However, three days after accepting the job at Hodgson's, Muir almost died of a malarial sickness. One evening in early January 1868, Muir climbed onto the Hodgson house roof to watch the sunset. He saw a ship, the island bell, and learned it would soon be sailing for Cuba. 
Mir boarded the ship, and while in Havana, he spent his hours studying shells and flowers and visiting the botanical garden in the city. Afterwards, he sailed to New York City and booked passage to California. Muir served as an officer in the United States Coast Survey, a uniformed government service agency. Explorer of Nature, California, experiencing Yosemite. Finally settling in San Francisco, Muir immediately left for a week-long visit to Yosemite, a place he had only read about. Seeing it for the first time, Muir notes that he, quote, was overwhelmed by the landscape, scrambling down steep cliff faces to get a closer look at the waterfalls, whooping and howling at the vistas, jumping tirelessly from flower to flower, end quote. He later returned to Yosemite and worked as a shepherd for a season. He climbed a number of mountains, including Cathedral Peak and Mount Dana, and hiked an old trail down Bloody Canyon to Mono Lake. Muir built a small cabin alongside Yosemite Creek, designing it so that a section of the stream flowed through a corner of the room so he could enjoy the sound of running water. He lived in the cabin for two years and wrote about this period in his first book, in his, in his book, First Summer in the Sierra, 1911. Muir's biographer, Frederick Turner, notes Muir's journal entry upon first visiting the valley and writes that his description, quote, blazes from the page with the authentic force of a conversion experience. Friendships. During these years in Yosemite, Muir was unmarried, often unemployed, with no prospects for a career, and had, quote, periods of anguish, writes naturalist author John Talmadge. He did marry in 1880 to Louisa Strenzel. He went into business for 10 years with his father-in-law, managing the orchards on the family 2,600-acre farm in Martinez, California. John and Louisa had two daughters, Wanda Muir Hanna and Helen Muir Funk. He was sustained by the natural environment and by reading the essays of naturalist author Ralph Waldo Emerson, who wrote about the very life that Muir was then living. On excursions into the backcountry of Yosemite, he traveled alone, carrying only a tin cup, a handful of tea, a loaf of bread, and a copy of Emerson. He usually spent his evenings sitting by a campfire in his overcoat, reading Emerson until under the stars. As the years passed, he became a fixture in the valley, respected for his knowledge of natural history, his skill as a guide, and his vivid storytelling. Visitors to the valley often included scientists, artists, and celebrities, many of whom made a point of meeting with Muir. Muir maintained a close friendship for, four, for 38 years with William Keith, a California landscape painter. They were both born the same year in Scotland and shared a love for the mountains of California. In 1871, after Muir had lived in Yosemite for three years, Emerson, with a number of academic friends from Boston, arrived in Yosemite during a tour of the western United States. The two men met, and according to Talmadge, quote, Emerson was delighted to find at the end of his career the prophet naturalist he had, he had, called, for so, he had called for so long ago. And for Muir, Emerson's visit came like a laying on of hands, end quote. Emerson spent one day with Muir, and he offered him a teaching position at Harvard, which Muir declined. Muir later wrote, quote, I never for a moment thought of giving up God's big show for a mere profship, end quote. Muir also spent time with photographer Carlton Watkins, 
and studied his photographs of Yosemite. Geological Studies and Theories Pursuit of his love of science, especially geology, often occupied his free time. Muir soon became convinced that glaciers had sculpted many of the features of the Yosemite Valley and surrounding area. This notion was in stark contradiction to the accepted contemporary theory promulgated by Josiah Whitney, head of the California Geological Survey, which contributed the formations of the valley to a catastrophic earthquake. As Muir's ideas spread, Whitney tried to discredit Muir by branding him as an amateur, but Louis Agassiz, the premier geologist of the day, saw merit in Muir's ideas and lauded him as, quote, the first man I have ever found who has any adequate conception of glacial action, end quote. In 1871, Muir discovered an active alpine glacier between Merced Peak, which helped his theories gain acceptance. A large earthquake centered near Lone Pine in Owens Valley strongly shook occupants of the Yosemite Valley in March 1872. The quake woke Muir in the early morning and he ran out of his cabin both glad and frightened, exclaiming, a noble earthquake. Other valley settlers who believed Whitney's ideas feared that the quake was a prelude to a cataclysmic deepening of the valley. Muir had no such fear and promptly made a, mono, a moonlit survey of new talus piles created by earthquake-triggered rock slides. This event led more people to believe in Muir's ideas about the formation of the valley. Botanical Studies in addition to his geologic studies, Muir also investigated the plant life of the Yosemite area. In 1873 and 1874, he made field studies along the western flank of the Sierra on the distribution and ecology of isolated groves of the giant sequoia. In 1876, the American Association for the Advancement of Science published Muir's paper on the subject. Pacific Northwest. Muir made four trips to Alaska, as far as Unalaska and Barrow. Muir, Mr. Young, Fort Wrangell missionary, and a group of Native American guides first traveled to Alaska in 1879 and were the first Euro-Americans to explore Glacier Bay. Muir Glacier was later named after him. He traveled into British Columbia a third of the way up the Stikine River, likening its Grand Canyon to, quote, a Yosemite that was a hundred miles long. Muir recorded over 300 glaciers along the river's course. He returned for further explorations in southeast Alaska in 1880 and 1881, was with the party that landed on Wrangell Island on the USS Corwin and claimed that, uh, claimed that island for the United States. He documented this experience in journal entries and newspaper articles later compiled and edited into his book, The Cruise of the Corwin. In 1888, after seven years of managing the Strensel Fruit Ranch in Alhambra Valley, California, his health began to suffer. He returned to the hills to recover, climbing Mount Rainier in Washington and writing Ascent Mount Rainier. Activism and Controversies Preservation Efforts Establishing Yosemite National Park Muir threw himself into the preservationist role with great vigor. He envisioned the Yosemite area and Sierra as pristine lands. He thought the greatest threat to the Yosemite area and the Sierra was domesticated livestock, especially domestic sheep, which he referred to as hoofed locusts. In June 1889, the influential associate editor of the Century magazine, Robert Underwood Johnson, camped with Muir in Tuolumne Meadows and saw firsthand the damage of large flock 
of sheep had done to the grassland. Johnson agreed to publish any article Muir wrote on the subject of excluding livestock from the Sierra High Country. He also agreed to use his influence to introduce a bill to Congress to make the Yosemite area into a national park, modeled after Yellowstone National Park. On September 30, 1890, the U.S. Congress passed a bill that essentially followed recommendations that Muir had suggested in the two century articles, quote, the treasures of the Yosemite and the features of the proposed national park, both published in 1890. But to Muir's dismay, the bill left Yosemite Valley under state control as it had been since the 1860s. Co-founding the Sierra Club. In early 1892, Professor Henry Sanger a philologist at the University of California, Berkeley, contacted Muir with the idea of forming a large local alpine club for mountain lovers. Sanger and San Francisco attorney Warren Olney sent out invitations for the purpose of forming a Sierra club. Mr. John Muir will preside. On May 28, 1892, the first meeting of the Sierra club was held to write articles of incorporation. One week later, Muir was elected president Warren Olney was elected vice president, and a board of directors was chosen that included David Starr Jordan, president of the new Stanford University. Muir remained president until his death 22 years later. The Sierra Club immediately opposed efforts to reduce Yosemite National Park by half and began holding educational and scientific meetings. At one point in the fall of 1895, that included Muir, Joseph LeConte, and William R. Dudley, the Sierra Club discussed the idea of establishing national forest reservations, which were later called national forests. The Sierra Club was active in the successful campaign to transfer Yosemite National Park from state to federal control in 1906. The fight to preserve Hetch Hetchy Valley was also taken up by the Sierra Club, with some prominent San Francisco members opposing the fight. Eventually, a vote was held that overwhelmingly put the Sierra Club behind the opposition to Hetch Hetchy Dam. Preservation versus Conservation In July 1896, Muir became associated with Gifford Pinchot, a national leader in the conservation movement. Pinchot was the first head of the United States Forest Service and a leading spokesman for the sustainable use of natural resources for the benefit of the people. His views eventually clashed with Muir's and highlighted two diverging views of the use of the country's natural resources. Pinchot saw conservation as a means of managing the nation's natural resources for long-term sustainable commercial use. As a professional forester, his view was that forestry is tree farming without destroying the long-term viability of the forests. Muir valued nature for its spiritual and transcendental qualities. In one essay about the national parks, he referred to them as, quote, places for rest, inspiration, and prayers. He often encouraged city dwellers to experience nature for its spiritual nourishment. Both men opposed reckless exploitation of natural resources, including clear-cutting of forests. Even Muir acknowledged the need for timber and the forest to provide it, but Pinchot's need, view of wilderness management was more resource-oriented. Their friendship ended late in the summer of 1897 when Pinchot released a statement to a Seattle newspaper supporting sheep grazing in forest reserves. Muir confronted Pinchot and demanded an explanation. When Pinchot reiterated his position, Muir told him, I don't want anything more to do with you. 
This philosophical divide soon expanded and split the con conservation movement into two camps, the preservationists, led by Muir, and Pinchot's camp, who co-opted the term conservation. The two men debated their positions in popular magazines such as Outlook, Harper's Weekly, Atlantic Monthly, World's Work, and Century. Their contrasting views were highlighted again when the United States was deciding whether to dam Hetch Hetchy Valley. Pinchot favored damming the valley as, quote, the highest possible use which could be made of it. In contrast, Muir proclaimed, damn Hetch Hetchy, as well damn for water tanks, the people's cathedrals and churches, for no holier temple has ever been consecrated by the hearts of man. In 1899, Muir accompanied railroad executive E.H. Harriman and esteemed scientists on the famous exploratory voyage along the Alaska coast aboard the luxuriously refitted 250-foot steamer, the George W. Elder. He later relied on his friendship with Harriman to pressure Congress to pass conservation legislation. In 1903, President Theodore Roosevelt accompanied Muir on a visit to Yosemite. Muir joined Roosevelt in Oakland, California for the train trip to Raymond. The presidential entourage then traveled by stagecoach into the park. While traveling to the park, Muir told the president about state mismanagement of the valley and rampant exploitation of the valley's resources. Even before they entered the park, he was able to convince Roosevelt that the best way to protect the valley was through federal control and management. After entering the park and seeing the magnificent splendor of the valley, the president asked Muir to show him the real Yosemite. Muir and Roosevelt set off largely by themselves and camped in the backcountry. The duo talked late into the night, slept in the brisk open air of Glacier Point, and were dusted by a fresh snowfall in the morning. It was a night Roosevelt never forgot. He later told a crowd, quote, Lying out at night under those giant sequoias was like lying in a temple built by no hand of man, a temple grander than any human architect could by any possibility build. Muir, too, cherished the camping trip. Camping with the president was a remarkable experience, he wrote. I fairly fell in love with him. Muir then increased efforts by the Sierra Club to consolidate park management. In 1906, Congress transferred the Mariposa Grove in Yosemite Valley to the park. Native Americans. Muir's attitude toward Native Americans evolved over his life. His earliest encounters during his childhood in Wisconsin were with Winnebago Indians, who begged for food and stole his favorite horse. In spite of that, he had a great deal of sympathy for their, quote, being robbed of their lands and pushed ruthlessly back into narrower and narrower limits by alien races who were cutting off their means of livelihood. His early encounters with the Paiute in California left him feeling ambivalent after seeing their lifestyle, which he described as lazy and superstitious. Eco-feminist philosopher Carolyn Merchant has criticized Muir, believing that he wrote disparagingly of the Native Americans he encountered in his early explorations. Later, after living with Indians, he praised and grew more respectful of their low impact on the wilderness compared to the heavy impact by European Americans. Muir was given the Stikin, Muir's spelling coastal tribe name, and Kutahan, meaning, meaning adopted chief. Hetch Hetchy Dam Controversy With population growth continuing in San Francisco, political pressure increased to dam the Tuolumne River for use as a water reservoir. 
Muir passionately opposed the damming of Hetch Hetchy Valley because he found Hetch Hetchy as stunning as Yosemite Valley. Muir, the Sierra Club, and Robert Underwood Johnson fought against inundating the valley. Muir wrote to President Roosevelt pleading for him to scuttle the project. Roosevelt's successor, William Howard Taft, suspended the Interior Department's approval for the Hetch Hetchy right-of-way. After years of national debate, Taft's successor, Woodrow Wilson, signed the bill authorizing the dam into law on December 19, 1913. Muir felt a great loss from the destruction of the valley, his last major battle. He wrote to his friend Vernon Kellogg, as to the loss of the Sierra Park Valley, Hetch Hetchy, it's hard to bear. The destruction of the charming groves and gardens, the finest in all California, goes to my heart. Nature Writer In his life, Muir published six volumes of writings, all describing explorations of natural settings. Four additional books were published posthumously. Several books were subsequently published that collected essays and articles from various sources. Miller writes that what was most important about his writings was not their quantity, but their quality. He notes that they have a lasting effect on American culture in helping to create the desire and will to protect and preserve wild and natural environments. His first appearance in print was by accident, writes Miller. A person he did not know submitted, without his permission or awareness, a personal letter to his friend Jean Carr describing Calypso Borealis, a rare flower he had encountered. The piece was published anonymously, identified as having been written by an inspired pilgrim. Throughout his many years as a nature writer, Muir frequently rewrote and expanded on earlier writings from his journals, as well as articles published in magazines. He often compiled and organized such earlier writings as collections of essays or included them as part of narrative books. Jean Carr, friend and mentor. Muir's friendship with Jean Carr had a lifelong influence on his career as a naturalist and writer. They first met in the fall of 1860 when, at age 22, he entered a number of his homemade inventions in the Wisconsin State Agricultural Society Fair. Carr, a fair assistant, was asked by fair officials to review Muir's exhibits to see if they had merit. She thought they did and, quote, saw in his, his entries evidence of genius worthy of special recognition, notes Miller. As a result, Muir received a diploma and a monetary award for his handmade clocks and thermometer. During the next three years, while a student at the University of Wisconsin, he was befriended by Carr and her husband, Ezra, a professor at the same university. According to Muir biographer Bonnie Joanna Geisel, the Carrs recognized his pure mind, unsophisticated nature, inherent curiosity, scholarly acumen, and independent thought. Jean Carr, 35 years of age, especially appreciated his youthful individuality, along with his acceptance of religious truths that were much like her own. Muir was often invited to the Carr's home. He shared with Jean's, he shared Jean's love of plants. In 1864, he left Wisconsin to begin exploring the Canadian wilderness and while there began corresponding with her about his activities. Carr wrote Muir in return and encouraged him in his expert explorations and writings, eventually having an important influence over his personal goals. At one point, she asked Muir to read a book she felt would influence his thinking. La Martine's The Stonemason of St. Point. It was the story of a man whose life she hoped would metabolize in Muir, writes Geisel, and, quote, was a protection, a projection of the life she envisioned for him, end quote. According to Geisel, the story was about a poor man with a pure heart who found in nature diverse, divine lessons and saw all of God's creatures interconnected. 
After Amir returned to the United States, he spent the next four years exploring Yosemite while at the same time writing articles for publication. During those years, Muir and Carr continued corresponding. She sent many of her friends to Yosemite to meet Muir to hear him preach the gospel of the mountains, writes Geisel. The most notable was naturalist and author Ralph Waldo Emerson. The importance of Carr, who continually gave Muir reassurance and inspiration, cannot be overestimated, adds Geisel. It was through his letters to her that he develops a voice and purpose. She also tried to promote Muir's writings by submitting his letters to a monthly magazine for publication. Muir came to trust Carr as his spiritual mother and they remained friends for 30 years. In one letter she wrote to Muir while he was living in Yosemite, she tried to keep him from despairing as to his purpose in life. The value of their friendship was first disclosed by a member of Carr's clergyman and writer G. Wharton James. After obtaining copies of their private letters from Carr and despite pleadings from Muir to return them, he instead published articles about their friendship, using those letters as a primary source. In one such article, his focus was Muir's debt to Carr, stating that she was his guiding star who, quote, led him into the noble paths of life and then kept him there. Writing becomes his work. Muir's friend, zoologist Henry Fairfield Osborne, writes that Muir's style of writing did not come to him easily, but only with intense effort. Daily, he rose at 4.30 o'clock, and after a simple cup of coffee, labored incessantly. He groans over his labors. He writes and he rewrites and inter interpolates. Osborne notes that he preferred using the sim simplest English language and therefore admired, love, adm admired above all the writings of Carlyle, Emerson, and Thoreau. He's a very firm believer in Thoreau and starts by reading deeply of this author. His secretary, Marian Randall Parsons, also noted that composition was always slow and laborious for him. Each sentence, each phrase, each word underwent his critical scrutiny, not once but 20 times before he was satisfied to let it stand. Muir often told her, this business of writing books is a long, tiresome, endless job. Miller speculates that Muir recycled his earlier writings partly due to his, quote, dislike of the writing process. He adds that Muir did not enjoy the work, finding it difficult and tedious. He was generally unsatisfied with the finished result, finding prose a, quote, weak instrument for the reality he wished to convey. However, he was prodded by friends and his wife to keep writing, and as a result of their influence, he kept at it, although never satisfied. Muir wrote in 1872, quote, No amount of world-making will ever make a single soul to know these mountains. One day's exposure to mountains is better than a cartload of books. In one of his essays, he gave an example of the deficiencies of writing versus experiencing nature. Philosophical Beliefs of Nature and Theology Muir believed that to discover truth, he must turn to what he believed were the most accurate sources. Muir had a strict Scottish Presbyterian upbringing. In his book, The Story of My Boyhood and Youth, 1913, he writes that during his childhood, his father made him read the Bible every day. Muir eventually memorized three quarters of the Old Testament and all of the New Testament. Muir's father read Josephus' War of the Jews to understand the culture of first century Palestine as it was written by an eyewitness and illuminated the culture during the period of the New Testament. But as Muir became attached to the American natural landscapes he explored, Williams notes that he began to see another, quote, primary source for understanding God, the Book of Nature. According to Williams, in nature, especially in the wilderness, Muir was able to study the plants and animals in an environment that he believed came straight from the hands of God, uncorrupted by civilization and domestication. As Tall Madge notes, Muir's belief in, his, in this book, Book of Nature, compelled him to tell the story of, quote, this creation in words any reader could understand. 
As a result, his writings were to become prophecy, for they sought to change our angle of vision. Williams notes that Muir's philosophy and worldview rotated around his perceived dichotomy between civilization and nature. From this developed his core belief that, quote, wild is superior. His nature writings became a, quote, synthesis of natural theology with scripture that helped him understand the origins of the natural world. According to Williams, philosophers and theologians such as Thomas Dick suggested that the best place to discover the true attributes of deity was in nature. He came to believe that God was always active in the creation of life and thereby kept the natural order of the world. As a result, Muir, quote, styled himself as a John the Baptist, adds Williams, whose duty was to immerse in mountain baptism everyone he could. Williams concludes that Muir saw nature as a great teacher, quote, revealing the mind of God. And this belief became the central theme of his later journeys in the subtext of his nature writing. During his career as writer and while living in the mountains, Muir continued to experience the presence of the divine in nature, writes Holmes. His personal letters also conveyed these feelings of ecstasy. Historian Catherine Albanese states, stated that in one of his letters, Muir's Eucharist made Thoreau's feast on woodchuck and huckleberry seem almost anemic. Muir was extremely fond of Thoreau and was probably influenced more by him than by Emerson. Muir often referred to himself as a disciple of Thoreau, of sensory perceptions and light. During his first summer in the Sierra as a shepherd, Muir wrote field notes that emphasized the role that the senses play in human perceptions of the environment. According to Williams, he speculated that the world was an unchanging entity that was interpreted by the brain through the senses, and Muir writes, if the creator were to bestow a new set of senses upon us, he would never doubt that we were in another world. While doing his studies of nature, he would try to remember everything he observed as if his senses were recording the impressions until he could write them in his journal. As a result of his intense desire to remember facts, he filled his field journals with notes on precipitation, temperature, and even cloud formations. However, Muir took his journal entries further than recording factual observations. Williams notes that he, the observations he recorded amounted to a description of, quote, the sublimity of nature and what amounted to, quote, an aesthetic and spiritual notebook. Muir felt that his task was more than just recording phenomena, but also to illuminate the spiritual implications of those phenomena, writes Williams. For Muir, mountain skies, for example, seemed painted with light and came to symbolize divinity. He often described the observations in terms of light. Muir, bi Muir biographer Stephen Holmes notes that Muir use words like glory and glorious to suggest that light was taking on a religious dimension. It is impossible to overestimate the importance of the notion of glory in Muir's published writings, where no other single image carries more emotional or religious weight, adding that his words exactly parallels its Hebraic origins, in which biblical writings often indicate a divine presence with, with light, as in the burning bush or pillar of fire, and described as the glory of God. Seeing nature as home. Muir often used the term home as a metaphor for both nature and his general attitude towards the natural world itself, notes Holmes. He often used domestic language to describe his scientific observations as when he saw nature as providing a home for even the smallest plant life. The little purple plant, tended by its maker, closed its petals, crouched low in its crevice of a home, and enjoyed the storm and safety. 
Muir also saw nature as his own home, as when he wrote Friends and described the Sierra as God's mountain mansion. He considered not only the mountains as home, however, as he also felt a closeness even to the smallest objects. The very stones seemed talkative, sympathetic, brotherly. No wonder when we consider that we all have the same father and mother. In his later years, he used the metaphor of nature as home in his writings to promote wilderness preservation. Not surprisingly, Muir's deep-seated feeling about nature as being his true home led to tension with his family at his home in Martinez, California. He once told a visitor to his ranch there, this is a good place to be housed in during stormy weather, to write in and to raise children in, but it is not my home. Up there, pointing towards the Sierra, is my home. Personal life. In 1878, when he was nearing the age of 40, Muir's friends pressured him to return to society. Soon after he returned to the Oakland area, he was introduced by Jean Carr to Louisa Strenzel, daughter of the prominent physician and horticulturist with the 2,600-acre fruit orchard in Martinez, California, northeast of Oakland. In 1880, after he returned from a trip to Alaska, Muir and Strenzel married. John Muir went into partnership with his father-in-law, Dr. John Strenzel, and for 10 years directed most of his energy into managing this large fruit farm. Although Muir was a loyal, dedicated husband and father of two daughters, his heart remained wild, writes Marquise. His wife understood his needs and after seeing his restlessness at the ranch would sometimes shoo him back up to the mountains. He sometimes took his daughters with him. The house and part of the ranch are now the John Muir National Historic Site. In addition, the WHC Folsom House, where Muir worked as a printer, is also listed on the National Register of Historic Places. Muir became a naturalized citizen of the United States in 1903. Death. John Muir died at California Hospital, now California Hospital Medical Center, in Los Angeles on December 24, 1914, of pneumonia at age 76 after a brief visit to Daggett, California to see his daughter Helen Muir Funk. His grandson, Ross Hanna, lived until uh, 2014 when he died at age 91. Legacy. During his lifetime, John Muir published over 300 articles and 12 books. He co-founded the Sierra Club, which helped establish a number of national parks after he died. Today, the club has over 2.4 million members. Muir's been called the patron saint of the typical American, uh, excuse me, Muir's been called the patron saint of the American wilderness in its archetypal free spirit. As a dreamer and activist, his eloquent words changed the way Americans saw their mountains, forests, seashores, and deserts said nature writer Gretel Ehrlich. He has not only the, led the effort to protect forest areas and have some designated as national parks, but his writings presented human culture and wild nature as one of humility and respect for all life. Robert Underwood Johnson, editor of Century Magazine, which published many of Muir's articles, states that he influenced people's appreciation of nature and national parks, which became a lasting legacy. From Johnson, the world will look back to the time we live in and remember the voice of one crying in the wilderness and bless the name of John Muir. He sung the, the glory of nature like another psalmist and, as a true artist, was unashamed of his emotions. His countrymen owe him gratitude as the pioneer of our system of national parks. Muir's writings and enthusiasm were the chief forces that inspired the movement. All the other torches were lighted from his. Muir exalted wild nature over human culture and civilization, believing that all life was sacred. Turner describes him as a man who, in his singular way, rediscovered America. 
as American pioneer and American hero. The primary aim of Muir's nature philosophy, writes Wilkins, has to was to challenge mankind's enormous conceit, and in doing so, he moved beyond the transcendentalism of Emerson to a biocentric perspective of the world. He did so by describing the natural world as a conductor of divinity, and his writings often made nature synonymous with God. His friend, Henry Fairfield Osborne, observed that as a result of his religious upbringing, Muir retained this belief, which is so strongly expressed in the Old Testament, that all the works of nature are directly the work of God. In the opinion of Enos Mills, a contemporary who established Rocky Mountain National Park, Muir's writings would likely, would likely to be the most influential force in this century. Tributes and Honors California celebrates John Muir Day on April 21st each year. Muir was the first person honored with California Commemorative Day when legislation signed in 1988 created John Muir Day, effective from 1989 onward. Muir is one of the three people so honored in California, along with Harvey Milk Day and Ronald Reagan Day. Mountain Days, a 2000 musical by Craig Bulmer, and Mary Bracken Phillips celebrates Muir's life and was performed annually in a custom-built amphitheater in Muir's adult hometown of Martinez, California. The play Thank God for John Muir by Andrew Dahlmeyer is based on his life. The following places are named after John Muir. Mount Muir in Sierra Nevada, California. Mount Muir in Chugach Mountains of Alaska. Mount Muir, elevation 4688 feet in Angeles National Forest, north of Pasadena. Black Butte, also known as Muir's Peak, next to Mount Shasta. Mount Glacier and Muir Inlet, Alaska. John Muir Trails in California, Tennessee, Connecticut, and Washington, excuse me, in Wisconsin. John Muir Wilderness, Southern and Central Sierra Nevada. Muir Pass, Sequoia, and Kings Canyon National Parks, the divide at 11,955 feet above sea level between Evolution Creek and Middle Fork of Kings River. Muir Woods National Monument, just north of San Francisco. John Muir National Historic Site in Martinez, California. Camp Muir in Mount Rainier National Park. John Muir College, one of the six undergraduate universities of University of California, San Diego. John Muir Highway, a section of California State Route 132 between Coulterville and Smith Station at California Route uh, 120. This road roughly follows part of the route Muir took on his first walk to Yosemite. The main belt asteroid 128523, John Muir. John Muir County Park, East Lothian, Scotland. John Muir Way, long distance trail in southern Scotland. John Muir House, the headquarters building of East Lothian Council in Scotland. John Muir Campus in Dunbar, one of two campuses of Dunbar Primary School, the successor to the school Muir attended. And John Muir was featured on two U.S. commemorative postage stamps. A five-cent stamp issued on April 29, 1964, was designated by Rudolf Wendelin and showed Muir's face superimposed on a grove of redwood trees and the inscription, John Muir, Conservationist. A 32-cent stamp was issued on February 3, 1998. It was part of the Celebrate the Century series and showed Muir in Yosemite Valley with the inscription, John Muir, Preservationist. An image of Muir with the California condor and half dome appears on the California State Quarter, released in 2005. A quotation of his 
of his appears on the reverse side of the Indianapolis Prize Lilly Medal for Conservation. On December 6, 2006, California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger and First Lady Maria Shriver inducted John Muir to California Hall of Fame, located at the California Museum of History, um, Women in the Arts. Muir and Hudson Stuck are honored with a feast day on the liturgical calendar of the Episcopal Church in the United States of America on April 22nd. The John Muir Trust is a Scottish charity established as a membership organization in 1983 to conserve wild land and wild places. It has more than 11,000 members internationally. The John Muir Birthplace Charitable Trust is a Scottish charity whose aim is to support John Muir's birthplace in Dunbar and develop it as an interpretive center focused on Muir's work. Murite, a mineral, Erigeron murii, Carlkistia murii, two species of aster, Ivesia murii, a member of the rose family, Troglodytes troglodytes murii, a wren, Ochotona princeps murii, a pica, Thecla murii, a butterfly, and Amplaria muri, a millipede, were all named after John Muir. In 2006, he was inducted into the Hall of Great Westerners of the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum. And that is what we have on John Muir for you today. If you want to make any changes, feel free to head over to Wikipedia and, uh, and do your work. But uh, I thought that was great comprehensive review of one of the true forefathers of this state. Hope you enjoyed, and we will hopefully hear from you or see you tomorrow. Thank you.